So, Romans chapter 3, and so we're in the, kind of in the middle of these lessons, and um, this section, as I mentioned last week also, but this section in Romans chapter 3 is one of the most doctrinally um, important passages in the New Testament. Romans chapter 3, about the middle of the page, period 21, about where we're starting, all the way through chapter 8, is uh, significant in, in so many ways uh, for our understanding of what it is to be saved, how we got saved, what God did so that we could have righteousness, um, all that God has accomplished for us so that we can live uh, to his honor, to his glory. And so there's so many different things, the power of the Spirit working in our life, the victory that God has given us, um, our power over the flesh, uh, all these areas that come up, and Paul just strings one right after another. And so we're going to be in this for, uh, for a while. As you know, my policy, if you can't teach it long, don't teach it at all. So anyway... <laughs> Um, there's no such thing as the book of Romans in one night. I was, I was given for the uh, online university that I'm teaching, um, the Pentateuch in one semester. Like, can I have like five years? Uh, really? Do you have many, do you know how many books that is? Boy, it's five, but, but. So much, and there's no small ones, and then you got that wonderful book of Leviticus right in the middle. And so, uh, so I get all that opportunity, and then I have to write a test for it, and that's what I'm in the process of doing too testing people. God did that, it took him to the wilderness. Is that, a, is that good enough? <laughs> so, should we just go out, walk around the desert for a while? Is that going to be our test? So, anyway. Um, but this section in Romans is, is so full of information that we need. So we're going to look again. We started into this section in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 21. Uh, but we're going to go back a couple verses just to uh, pick up where we were and add a couple of thoughts along the way. So Romans chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 21. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you got a device, that's all right, too. So, okay, Romans 3 and verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has his faith in Jesus. 
then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. You should have noticed the difference in those words. One by faith, the other through faith. We'll talk about that. So it says, do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So there it is. That's a, uh, a lot <laughs> of material. Some that we're going to go back over. We talked some about it last week. Uh, so let's go back up um, really to the beginning of this and just to kind of read down through some of the, the principles. See, God knew that we would try to somehow build our own righteousness, but it won't work. It hasn't worked. Uh, it never will work. So the, the message that God gave was the message that had nothing to do with who you were, what you came from, what you learned under, where you were born, where you were located, had nothing to do with that. The point being that everyone needed grace, which was our subject for last week. Well, but we're Jews. We've got our, we got our special entrance. No, you don't. And Paul, by the way, everybody knows he was a Jew. Jew. Yeah. So... He's saying, no, you, you don't have any special way in. There's no secret avenue by which you have access. All need grace. What about all of, our, all of our keeping the law? Yeah, in keeping the law, you offered sacrifice and said you broke the law. So there you are. <laughs> you need a redeemer. So this, this principle that everyone needs grace that everyone needs to receive was one of the things that opened the eyes of Martin Luther. And as it came to the time of the Reformation, this is one of those things that stirred so much in his heart. He was fighting this thing unrighteousness because at that time the, the Roman church interpreted righteousness as justice. And he saw it the justice of God, which was severe and and absolute and always against you. And so anytime he thought about the justice of God, all he could see was this big man sitting on the throne ready to beat him. So what did he do? He beat himself. And he often put himself through uh, penance and all manners of things, you know, trying to buy pilgrimages and by by doing things and giving and all those things and sacrificing or trying somehow to get this righteousness to appease this God of justice. But the truth is God wasn't mad at him. God put his son on the cross 
so that he could have righteousness by faith. Suddenly that came to him, and we've talked about that before. But one of the principles that built out of the Reformation, and it's there on your pages, was there's five of these solas, but I just brought three of them in here because they're, they apply in the passage we're looking at. And so uh, these solas, which means alone, all right? So this alone. And the first is sola gratia, and sola gratia had to do with grace alone. You're saved by grace alone. Say, well, do you really need to put the word alone in there? Yeah. And the numbers of theologians have fought over that, but most of them agree, yeah, you need to put the word alone. Grace alone. Because everybody, you say grace, and then they want to say, yeah, but... See, there it is. (laughs) Yeah, but it's... But also, and... Grace alone, but you better not use it too much. It's not greasy grace. You know, it's not grace to do anything you want to do. So they want to somehow qualify grace. But no, sola gratia, grace alone. What follows sola gratia is sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone. God's grace our faith. We're saved by grace alone, coming from God, and by faith alone. Wait a minute. If, if it's grace alone, then why is it faith alone? Because grace is God's side, and faith is yours. And so we receive this grace of God. How? How do we receive it? By faith, by faith what? Alone. alone. Nothing else. You can't work for it, you can't earn it, you can't buy it, you can't get enough of it, you can't have a little bit of grace, you need more grace. Some people need a lot of grace, some people need a little bit of grace. No, we all need grace alone. Because whatever you got, God discounts. It doesn't matter. You say, yeah, but I've got, I got all of this. God says, doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Your goodness is thrown aside. Your badness is thrown aside, and you receive grace. How? By faith. By faith. Faith alone. And then the final one that that applies to the section we're looking at is sola Cristo. And sola Cristo is Christ alone. Because the only access to this grace by faith is through Jesus Christ. And so these are... The principles and these 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 words opened up Luther's understanding of Scripture, and uh, one of the amazing things is uh, when he went to this university to teach. He was already in trouble with the Roman Church over some of his doctrines. What did they give him to teach? The Book of Galatians and the Book of Romans. And the book of Hebrews and the book of Psalms. Hmm. I say they just added fuel to the fire. You know, if there's any books that you could have kept him out of, it would be Grace and Romans and Hebrews. You know, so anyway. But so 
as, as Paul has come down through this, he's been arguing with this invisible person, his opponent, opponents, because obviously there are people who think this way in the Roman church. There are many really good, stable, they don't have the full understanding and knowledge of all the things that Paul wants to teach them about. But there's also, he knows that there is also at this church in Rome, there are these moralists who think that, you know, my good surely is good enough. And there are mostly Gentiles who have come from, you know, a good background and I've never done this and I've never done that and I've always this and therefore that that has to count. And Paul says, no, it doesn't count. And then there's, of course, some Jews in there who think that their Jewishness is their key, it's their ticket uh, to salvation or to righteousness. It's not, because God throws all those aside. So then, how does he say it? Passage right there in the middle of your page. But now, now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, so there is a there is a grace, there is a righteousness that is apart from the law. Is there a righteousness by the law? Yes, but it's a it's a uh, imputed righteousness, just like Abraham's righteousness was imputed to him before the law, and so Abraham was made righteous how by faith. We're going to talk about that. But that's not the same kind of righteousness that we have. Abraham's righteousness was still outward. Ours is inward. And so there is a righteousness that we gain that has nothing to do with the law. Can I say it that way? It's apart from the law, separate from the law, distinct from the law. We talked a lot about that last week. And this righteousness is what? What's it say in verse 22? This righteousness of God is what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So this righteousness of God that is nothing to do with the law is through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, if there hadn't been the law, then Jesus wouldn't have come. Yeah, he could have come before the law. Abraham had a righteousness before the law. And so there is a righteousness that can be gained, but it's through faith in in Jesus Christ. Well, then how are the people in the Old Testament saved? Under the law, how are they saved? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Huh? How? That sacrifice whose blood was shed and you laid your hands upon it and it was offered on the altar. That sacrifice was Jesus Christ and that sacrifice was your access into the presence of God. You say, well, I'm going to do the law, but I'm not going to do the sacrifices, which is exactly where Judaism is today. I'm going to do the law, but not the sacrifices. You can't, because you can't live by the law. So, without the sacrifices, you are not fulfilling the law, and you will never obtain this righteousness. So, the way to salvation has always been by faith, whether it was faith in whatever animal that God slew to bring the skins to Adam and Eve, that lamb that Abel sacrificed, the offering that Noah made, doesn't matter. It was faith, faith in what that represented. 
And so that's how salvation has always been, has never been. No one is saved by the law. No one. The righteousness that they could, in a sense, obtain was because they believed that that sacrifice represented Christ. So, this is the way that God is made. And who's this for? Verse 22 says, for all who believe. For all who what? All who what? Believe. Believe. So, believing faith is absolutely essential. You can't have this without it. And what's Paul's statement at the end of that? There is no distinction. Now, I know, we break things into verses, and so we get little verse numbers up there, and we break them into paragraphs. Paul didn't. There is no distinction for all of sin to come short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption of the, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. For who? There is no distinction between who? Jew and Gentile. Doesn't matter. All have sinned. What? Not like them. Okay, we're Jews. We may have sinned, but we didn't sin like they've sinned. I mean, really. Yeah, right. There's no distinction, Paul says. doesn't matter. Everyone, everyone is saved by faith. In the Old Testament, it was saved as hope. It was something that was going to happen. The cross had not come yet, so they were saved, in a sense, by hope. It was faith in what was done, but their salvation was all future. In other words, they died in hope that the Messiah would pay the price. They died believing in the Messiah who was not yet to come. We believe what? In past. It's already done. So for us, it's been done for the people in the Old Testament before the cross. It was in the future. But you had to have faith. It was only faith that would bring you into the presence of God. And why is this? Look at the rest of verse 25. This was to show what? God's righteousness. There's the title for my lesson tonight. Establishing God's Right, Not yours. God's righteousness. It's about what he has done. How he has acted righteously to bring salvation to us. To bring new life, new birth, eternal life. How he has given us access. How he has removed our sin. And he's given the power of his spirit to indwell us, to recreate us in his image. Glorious stuff. All of this. And what did you do? What did you do to get it? Believed. And here's the thing. What you believed was already done before you needed it. Now I know. I might be old. But Jesus still died before I was born. All right. All of that was done before I was here. And thousands of years before that, God said he was going to do it. And then before he ever created the heavens and the earth, he planned that he would do it. This eternal 
timeless. I just kind of walked into it. And so did you. And so everything that God did was already done when you came to the place where you needed salvation. It's already accomplished. All you need to do is believe in it. And you believed, and you were recreated in his image and likeness. What a glorious thing. Oh, your past gone? Everything that you've ever felt separated from God removed, which is what we'll talk about tonight. This was to show whose righteousness? God's righteousness. So it's not about me. It's about him. So I don't know if that person can get saved. You know, if, if, if somebody said that close enough to me, I, 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 would, I think I would slap them. I might not. Depends on how big they are. But I would want to. All right? And so in my mind, I'd be slapping them all over the place. But what do you mean that person can't be? People think of some people who are horrible criminals who've done unbelievable things, and we think, well, they couldn't be saved. I don't know if they are, but the point is, they could be. Nobody is too bad to be saved, and nobody's so good they don't need it. It is a gift of God, and it's to show His righteousness. And go on with verse 25. To show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Oh, there's a bunch of stuff in there. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness. Same phrase, back again. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You are not just without him and you are not the justifier he might be just and the justifier of all who what? All who have faith in Jesus. Without faith in Jesus, none of this will work. So, see, Paul's hope before he became a Christian was that he could live good enough to somehow prove to God that he was worth being saved that he could somehow live up to all of God's standards. And in his mind, Philippians chapter 3, what do you say? Concerning, concerning the law, blameless. Wow. Now only a Pharisee would say that. <laughs> so, Paul would, he had this, this idea in him. And he, he wanted to know that there was nothing he would, wouldn't do in order to gain this righteousness by his life. You want me to shave my head? I'll shave my head. You want me to sacrifice 10 animals? I'll sacrifice 10 animals. I have to sell my house to do it, but that's okay. I'll do it. You want me to... Uh, to make a journey to Jerusalem, although it's, you know, 3,000 miles away, I'll do it. I don't have any vehicle. I don't have any way to get there. I don't have a donkey. I'll walk. 
So it was whatever you're asking me to do, I can do it. But he couldn't. Because when he got there, he offered sacrifices. That's the whole point. So only God can pronounce us whole. So go down toward the bottom of the page. We've already looked at these verses. We kind of looked at this last week. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's no hope of righteousness outside of Jesus Christ. There just isn't. All have sinned. Verse 24. But like I said, don't preach verse 23 without attaching verse 24. Because if all you're telling people is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and you don't follow and are justified freely by his grace, if you don't follow up, then you have not helped them at all. You've just told them, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, bye. That does nothing. And are justified by his grace as a gift, the ESV says. King James, I think, says justified freely by his grace, as if grace needed to be free. I mean, it's already free. So why is the word free in there? Why is, in ESV, why is the word gift justified by his grace as a gift? Well, the word justified, of course, means to be made into a place of right standing, to have God put you in a place of right standing where there is nothing separating between you and God. Nothing separating. So you are on, as some people say, an equal plane with God. Don't get theologically goofy with that, but you're on a theological, yes, you're on an equal plane in the sense that there's nothing between you. You are human. He is God, but he has justified you by removing anything that could separate you from him except the fact that he's deity and you're humanity. That's the only thing that is there. But what's he going to do with your humanity? Ultimately, he's going to what? Change it. He's going to change your body to be like his glorious body. And he's going to change you into his own image. Not going to make you God. Just going to be glorified human and God for all eternity Wow. So God's going to do all of that. He's going to, you can't, you can't do that. You can't glorify your body. You can't change it into his image and likeness. You can't. Nothing you can do. Okay, yeah, you can grow a beard. You can grow long hair. You can look like what people think Jesus looked like. That's not the same thing. What is that? Outward. He's absolutely pure and holy. Amen. Thank God. And how did he do this? It says, by his grace, the word grace, of course, is charis. And charis has to do with God's power made available to you for whatever weakness that you have. Paul said, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul said, I asked the Lord three times to take this away, and the Lord said, My grace is sufficient. 
No, my grace is your overwhelming surplus. That's what the word sufficient in Greek means. My grace is your overwhelming surplus for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So what is grace? My power making perfect whatever weakness you have. If your weakness is because you are a sin, his grace will cover it. If it's because you have need, he'll cover it. If it's because you feel that you cannot do what he's asked you to do, he'll cover it. If you don't have uh, the provision, he'll supply it. If you have weakness, sickness, disease in your body, he will cover it. His grace is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul said, then show me every weakness I've got. Because the more I see my weakness, what? The more I can draw on your grace. I want to find out all the places in my life that I am weak that I cannot and draw you in to fix all of those. What a glorious thing. So that's Caris. And then he says, not only is he going to give you that, which has nothing to do with your merit, has nothing to do with demerit. You can't be good enough for God's grace. You can't be bad enough to not get it. It will cover every need that you have. It's totally given by God's sovereign choice. You have nothing to do with it. It's God. And God decided to give his grace. And it's made, been made available to who? To everyone. So that everyone can what? Believe. It's given to everyone so everyone can believe. But what? But not everyone will believe. See, that's where it's up to you. You say, no, salvation can't be in our hands. It's not in your hands. God sovereignly gave you the opportunity to believe. It's your choice, but he gives you the opportunity. We'll talk more about that when we get to Romans 9 sometime in the next three years. Okay, so. (laughs) But not only does he give us this grace, at the end it says, as a gift. It's like, wait a minute, it's already grace. Isn't that a gift? Yeah, but Paul says, God told me to add this word. So Paul is writing by the inspiration of God, and he says it's not just grace, it's grace as a gift. The Greek word dorian, and dorian is a Greek word which means something that is freely given with no strings attached. It's, it's a gift that is just, why are you giving me this? You know, people give gifts to do what? Uh, manipulate him, get something, yeah. <laughs> they give gifts to impress. They give gifts because it's somebody's birthday. Like that cookies over there. Yep, like something's in here. But there was a gift for me, and if you had believed, you would, uh, okay. So, but, see, this is a gift. A gift that is free. It's like, wait a minute. If it's a gift, isn't it free? Well, no, not always. Because you give gifts to your relatives, but you don't give them to everybody. You give them a gift to a friend. So there, there are, in a sense, strings attached to gifts and gift giving. And there's, there's, a, whole, there's a whole like 
policy of gift giving. If someone gives you a gift, you are obligated to give them a gift back of the same value, right? And so if you go to a gift thing, you don't want to re-gift the gift that somebody gave to you. So you got to somehow remember who gave that gift so that you don't give back with a gift that... Because so that, but it's isn't it a gift? Yeah, but it's it's not kind of not a gift because anyway, but this one is free, nothing attached. But it's already grace. But it's a gift. Huh? It's too much for my mind. And how do we get this? What's it say at the bottom of your page? Through what? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption. And and this justification that comes to us by grace as a gift is through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Go to the top of your next page. The word for redemption, there is the word apolutrosis. Talked a little bit about that last week. Same principle here. The word apolutrosis, uh, it comes from this, the root, or the word means to wash. All right, so lutrosis has to do with washing, freeing, clearing, setting free. When you wash your hands, you set free the dirt. All right, it comes from the root, which means to destroy or to loose. Luo, because you are loosing the dirt. All right, so the idea of this word is a lot of, of power in it, but it also had to do with someone who was imprisoned, someone who'd been taken captive, uh, someone uh, who was a victim of someone else's activity. And so a captive, a prisoner, a victim. But what does it say? They're held by an opponent, but they are sent away in freedom, not to be held again. That's the little three words at the beginning, apo, A-P-O, in front of the word lutrosis. So lutrosis by itself would mean to free, right, to set free. But this means set free and send away, or send away in freedom, or totally liberate and so the idea behind this is not only that, but they can't be made a prisoner again. It is a sending away in absolute freedom. And this redemption, there's a number of different words for redemption. This is one of them. These words for redemption have to do with the fact that, that this is, is what I received. And this justification by grace as a gift is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus through the fact that he paid the price and sent us away never to be made a slave again never to be made a victim again you say well I wish <laughs> I wish that was a reality in my life when you encounter those things trying to put you in bondage trying to put you in, in chains or trying to take you captive you speak against those because no that's not no I have been sent away in freedom devil you've got no power over me you cannot put me in bondage 
You cannot make me your prisoner. You can't make me a prisoner to the law. I've been sent away in freedom. You can't make me a victim. Oh, he can throw stuff at you, and it can be there, and it can hurt, and it can be real. But the truth is, I am not a victim of that. I am set free, and I am going to see my freedom. I'm going to realize my freedom. I'm going to speak on my freedom because I've been sent away in freedom. And so he goes on in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This word put forward, I didn't really cover this last week, but the idea of the word put forward means this was done openly, publicly. Whom God has put forward, who God has, in a sense, displayed that this was done by God publicly putting his son on the cross. Jesus wasn't crucified in some back room somewhere. Oh yeah, he was beaten and punished and thrown into the prison and, and mocked and ridiculed and bloodied and all those things that the horror of what he went through at the hands of the soldiers in their prisons was horrific but then they drug him out in the public and beat him and stripped him nailed him on a cross and said here look at what we do to our enemies and god said no this is what i do to make you my child that's what the cross is all about. Now, I'm not into, I know, in the Romans, they got Jesus hanging on the cross and all that. And so we say, no, the cross shouldn't have any. But really, I'm not saying do it. I'm just saying if you look at the cross and you don't see the blood, you're missing the point. Because that's what the cross was all about. It's not about the cross being empty. It's about the cross being the place where the blood was poured out. It was not, it's not something that it's to be forgotten. That's the problem when people translate, we're going to talk about this word propitiation, they translate it just as mercy. It's not mercy. Mercy is when God doesn't give you what you deserve. When God removes you from the justice that you should have. How many would stand for the before the justice of God, you know, without the blood of Jesus in between. I don't. So mercy is, is God sending you away, saying, all right, I'm not going to put this on you. Mercy is a wonderful thing. And the mercy, the, the love of God, the loving kindness, as it's often translated in the Old Testament, it's an incredible word. But listen to me. That's not what this cross is all about, and it's not what propitiation is. Propitiation is when you see the blood. That should be me. That's, that's my life. Taken instead by my Savior. And I think we lose a lot of our love for the cross.
hour. And I know, people say, well, we should preach the tomb. Yeah. And I believe in the, I believe in the empty tomb. Thank God I do. And I believe in the resurrection. But Paul's going to get to the resurrection later. But before you can get to the resurrection, you've got to talk about the blood. The place where the blood was poured out. The Old Testament picture, whether you're talking about the Passover or the Day of Atonement, it's all about blood. You know, it says, well, you know, I don't care if the blood's on the doorpost. It doesn't really matter. In, 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 you know, in my heart, the blood is on the doorpost. Um, you're not going to live through the night. You know, if it's a, you know, I'm not going to put blood on the doorpost. You better. <laughs> you better. And when it comes to the Day of Atonement, you better recognize that someone is paying for this. And these two goats, one dies and one is sent to hell. What are you going to do with that? You know, I, I thank God. <laughs> so, this idea of God did it, well, he did it publicly. In the tabernacle, in the temple, where was the blood poured out? In the Holy of Holies. On top of the, what we call the mercy seat. I'm going to correct that for us here before the end of the night. On the mercy seat, which is on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? <laughs> the covenant. All right, so, yeah, it was the covenant. It was the law. So this was the Ark of the Law. The covenant. The, the covenant, not the covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was the covenant God made at Sinai, which said... I'll give you all these blessings if you do all the law. And the people said, okay, we'll do it. And uh, that didn't last through the night. So, so what did God do? He said, I want you to put a mercy seat on top of that law because you can't stand in the face of the law. You can't stand before the holiness of God. There's nothing unholy about the law. It's absolutely perfect. Paul's going to say later in Romans chapter 7 that the law is perfect. What? Yeah, the law is perfect. It's just that you can't live up to it. And so, um, question Jan asked me at the end of class. She said, you know, you talk about Galatians chapter 2. We're deemed from the curse of the law. It doesn't say curses of the law. It's the curse that is the law. We've been redeemed from the curse that is the law. Yes, we've been redeemed from the curse of poverty, sickness, and death. That's, that's good. That's wonderful. And we have that because we've been redeemed from the curse, which is the law. You don't have to keep the law in order to have sickness or healing and provision and freedom. You don't have to keep the law to get the blessings anymore. Go back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 28. You read through the blessings, blessed will you be here, blessed in this, blessed in that. And we read through that. That's 14 verses. What follows are the curses, which we don't want to read. And it's three times as many as it is the blessings. So what? Because... You can't do that. And you say, well, we, we have received the blessings. We live in the blessings of Deuteronomy 28. I don't want to live in those blessings. 
I live in better blessings than Deuteronomy 28 because I don't have to keep the law to get them. All right, I'm preaching something that obviously you don't believe in. So, <laughs> No, I'm not supposed to be there, but, but that's the reality. I've been redeemed from the curse, which is having to live by the law. And that's what, that's what Paul means in Galatians chapter 2, the curse, which is the law. He's not talking about redeemed from poverty, sickness. I've been redeemed from a whole lot more than poverty, sickness, and death. Amen. I've been redeemed from the law. Right. Romans 10.4, we'll get to it. Romans 10.4, Christ is the... Anybody? Christ is the... Three-letter word. End. Christ is the end of the law as a means of righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for it. You don't have to live by the law in order to obtain righteousness. You believe in Jesus Christ. Christ is the end, the termination, the, the thing that the law leads up to and is fulfilled in him. Read the Amplified Version of Romans 10.4. Just write that down in your notes someplace. Get it, pull it up in your U version. I don't care. <laughs> Amplified Version, Romans 10.4. Just write it down. Go home and read it. Like I taught on Sunday, you know, read, read just a couple verses and think about it. Stop reading long passages. Okay, I'm not... Is that... That's because I like to preach short passages. So anyway, let's go back to our notes. Whom God has put forward. God didn't hide this. When the priests poured the blood on the mercy seats in the Old Testament, even at the time of Jesus, no one saw it. In fact, the true Ark of the Covenant was not there in Jerusalem. They had one. There was a model of the one that had originally been because when they went to Babylon, the true Ark of the Covenant disappeared. And so what they had in there was a replica, a cheap copy, even though it was probably made of more gold than the original Ark was. It was probably beyond your imagination how valuable this thing was but it sat there and it sat in a place where only one priest one time a year saw it but when jesus died it's public when his blood was poured out it was on a hill god didn't want it in a valley he didn't want it hidden back in a cave he didn't want him crucified inside the walls of the antonio fortress he didn't want them drug off to to Kaiva's house and put to death in the dungeon? No, it had to be on a hill where everyone could see it. Why? Because God displayed the propitiation. And so that's what it says. Whom God put forward or displayed or made public a propitiation by his blood. This word propitiation is huge. I just scratched the surface of this last week, and I'm going to 
talk about it tonight, and this is probably all the further we're going to get. Propitiation. The Greek word looks like we're words that you can't even say, but it's, you can, it's easy. Hilasterion, hilasterion, just say it, hilasterion. Throw that into your conversation, you know, with your kids or friends, you know, just at the lunch, you know, say, well, the hilasterion. What? So what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean mercy. Because mercy is when God just sets aside. But, but you see, somebody has to pay the price. Now I'm going to get myself in major trouble right now. If, if I'm not here next week, you know I'm in a dungeon somewhere. No. <laughs> oh, boy, what am I going to say here? Oh, boy, here I go. So, Mercy. We're going to forgive all your college debt. We're going to forget all of your student loans. We're going to show mercy. No, wait a minute. I'm paying for that. What do you mean it's your mercy? And I know. There may be a few of us in here that have student loans, but I didn't. I never did. But um, the, uh, the reality is, you know, I'm sorry for all those people that have, I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt. I, I'm sorry for that. But it's not free. Somebody paid for it. And the reality is, our government's paying for it with money they don't have. So, my future is leveraged so that you can have your student debt paid off. Got some friends paid off his student debt, hundreds of thousands of dollars paid it off, and he is not happy that somebody else is going to say, well, it's mercy. Yep. Because mercy costs somebody. All right, so, yes, there's mercy. And the court, the judge can show mercy, but somebody has to pay. All right? But propitiation is different than that. Propitiation is when the, the cost is put upon someone else. And it's laid upon someone else. And so the idea of propitiation is that the blood is the, the demonstration that freedom has been given to someone else. Propitiation. John chapter, or 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, you know this verse. He is the, what, propitiation for our sins. That's good. That's good right there because who's in that who's in that phrase for what? For our sins. You're in that phrase. But look at this. But not for ours only, but also for the sins 
of the whole world. You know, it's grace and wonderful that God paid a price. And the, by the blood shed by Jesus Christ, my sins have been forgiven. But you know what else? He's paid the price for the sins of the whole world. Not just me. All they need to do is believe. And, and they say, well, but my, my sins have not been paid for. Yes, they have. And when we stand before the great white throne and people say, well, but, you know, my sin wasn't paid for, that's because you didn't believe. So, it's not just for us. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing, that you love God. And we should love God, and it's good. And it, and it benefits other people when you love God, really. Right? So your love for God is, affects the way you treat other people, and you deal with other people, and that's good and wonderful, and I, I want you to love God, but that's not the real miracle, that you love God. Here's the real miracle, that he loved us. And sent his son to be the what? Propitiation. Propitiation. For our sins. And so he is this, this place where God's judgment was executed. His judgment fell so that you could walk in freedom. And so it's not... It's not appeasing God's anger. It's not avenging his anger. It is the necessary payment so that his grace can be given, that his mercy can be seen. There had to be a place that in the righteousness of God, in his altogether holiness, he couldn't just say, ah, forget it. It's okay. It doesn't matter. You know, people sometimes come up and hurt you, and, and some of it is like, I, I didn't really even know. I'm, and I, I've gotten to the place where I've realized I need to acknowledge when they say, I'm sorry, and I say, it, it's okay. It, it really didn't mean anything to me. Then that you're saying it didn't mean anything to them. No, accept it. Thank you. You're forgiven. You say, well, it didn't really hurt you. I didn't really even know you did it. That's okay. Acknowledge it so that they can receive the freedom that their penance is asking for. And that's what we do when we believe in Jesus Christ. We're saying thank you. I deserve to die. Judgment should be laid on me. But publicly, it was laid on him. And again, I'm not saying go, go back and put a bloody Jesus on the cross. But if you can't think of a bloody Jesus on the cross, when you come to God for forgiveness, you're missing the point. Because it's not just some mental thing that God says, oh, okay, forgiven. No, it's paid for by the blood of my son. Listen to this beautiful parable. Jesus told a story 
about a tax collector and a Pharisee. I mentioned this last week, but I wanted you to have the verses here. The tax collector and the Pharisee and the tax collector standing afar off, the two were in there, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That word merciful is the same Greek word propitiation. Be my propitiation. He didn't say, God, just write it off. Take an eraser and erase it out of the books. He didn't say, just kind of push it off to the side. Can you just kind of look away from my... No, he said, be my mercy seat. Be the place where the blood is poured out. That's what I need. I need somebody who's going to die for my sin. I need somebody's blood to pay for my sin. This this man, realizing how far he was separated from God. Be that place where blood is poured out for my sin. Jesus said, verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house, what? Justified. (laughs) Justified. The justification or the righteousness that is ours by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has publicly displayed as our mercy seat, as the place where the blood was poured out. And the blood of Jesus satisfies this requirement of God's holy law. God could not erase sin. It had to be paid for. Adam and Eve, they just ate a fruit off of a tree. Wrong tree, wrong fruit. But it cost somebody their life. Some animal was slain to cover their... Oh, no. That wasn't what it was all about. It wasn't an animal who died. It was who? It was God's son. That whatever animal it was, I believe it was a lamb. That lamb represented someone who thousands of years down the road was going to be hanging on a cross. Blood pouring down so that God could forgive the fact that they took a fruit from the wrong tree. Wow. That's what it's about. This blood of Jesus satisfies all the just requirements of God. Everything that God has done. Paul's going to talk about this later on in chapter 5. He's going to talk about how one man's sin and all of us died. Yeah, but then there's billions of sins and one man died to pay for all of them. So this wondrous thing that God has done by removing the the penalty, the wrath of God, which is what the mercy seat is all about, the place where the wrath is not satisfied, it's removed. 
is set aside. And so this is the mercy seat of God. And what does Paul say down the bottom of your page two? It's how it's to receive how? This propitiation that God has done publicly, what? Is to receive by faith. To be received by faith. And so this pardon, this liberation, this atonement that is being made is so that we can live in freedom. Three points down at the bottom and my last point here. Paul uses in this passage, as we've just gone down through it, Paul uses the law court, justified, pardoned. He uses the slave market, redeemed. And he uses the altar, expiation, atoning sacrifice, all of these things. So Paul combines all of this, a court of law where you are set free, a a prison where you are set free, an altar where your sin is paid for by blood that is poured out for you. All of this to show us what God has done to save us. Isn't that wonderful? So... That's our lesson for tonight.